Okay. Um, <clears throat> let me, well, maybe a few more people are, are coming in. Um, let me just kind of introduce what I want to do. Um, and sort of prepare you for the rambulation that you're going to hear tonight, okay? Um, <coughs> I thought we started next week, <laughs> okay? <laughs> so, um, it was about 10 o'clock this morning that Dan reminded me, no, it was not, it was not next Wednesday. It's tonight. So, <laughs> so <coughs> I have been thinking about what I want to do. And I hope I don't r run anybody off. Um, but I want to look at, kind of start looking at the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, so forth. But use that as a jumping off place to look at the maturing of the church as many of the heresies as we can tolerate. Um, because here, uh, a thought that has occurred to me um, that I want to kind of emphasize, all of the creeds, all of the, nearly all of the letters that the apostles wrote in the New Testament were responses to problems. They were problem-oriented. Galatians, they got off the track doctrinally. Colossians, they got off the track doctrinally. Obviously, Corinth, two letters to Corinth was just rife with problems. Um, so, probably the cleanest epistles um, with the least problems were the Thessalonians, but they had some er doctrinal errors. They were um, thinking that the resurrection was closer than it was, the return of Christ closer than it was. They were apparently, some of them were so sure Jesus was coming in you know the next few days that they weren't going to work and they were just wandering around. Um, <clears throat> we have that. That has happened down through history. Um, so... Most of the reasons that we have the New Testament, um, not necessarily the Gospels, but the letters, have to do with confronting problems, okay? Um, heading off heresies. The creeds came about to head off heresies. Um, so I think for us as Christians, especially in a day when we more and more need to know what we believe and why we believe it and be able to defend it. We hardly know anything about the problems that prompted letters to be written, creeds to be outlined, kind of tests of faith to be put up. Um, and I won't jump ahead of myself, but there's a third creed called the Athanasian Creed. And it starts out um, blunt. You will not, I'm paraphrasing, you won't go to heaven if you don't believe these following things. Okay? Um, we're especially in a day today um, when doctrine doesn't matter. But doctrine was everything then. Um, and so it was extremely important. The fact that it isn't today doesn't mean it isn't important. Nobody just pays attention to it. Um, but, <coughs> so, the, the bad thing here too is we could be looking at, I don't want to just, you know, do monologues, but um, there's a lot of this that not a l we don't study much. So a lot of people don't, uh, I don't know how to say this. Um, you know, I'm the only one that's read all this. And I know that sounds uh, horribly arrogant, which, you know, 
Yeah, I see you sitting there. You, yeah. But I, it's just stuff we need to know. So I'm going to do my best. I do want you to um, do, uh, help me this year. Um, often when I would ask for questions and so forth, um, I never hardly got any. And, you know, people would just, um, I don't want you to be like cattle who kind of lower their heads and look at you through the fence. You know what I'm talking about? Um, so I have no way of judging whether I'm connecting with you. So you're, there are no stupid questions, okay, period. Um, so here's another thing that's going to be pure heresy. Um, for much of this, at least initially, um, you don't need a Bible. <laughs> so, so here we are. Here we are. This is a church. Um, we, we look at this as a Bible study, and but hey, we're not going to use a Bible. That's not the way it's going to continue. But um, what I want to try to do tonight is give you some introduction. How far we'll get, I don't know. But um, hopefully things will begin to what we're going to do will begin to become more clear as we get through our first night here. So um, let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and pray. I'm going to have handouts for you, not tonight, but I will have them for you, depending on what we're going over and the various creeds and all that. Um, <clears throat> I hope you're interested in the things that I'm interested in. I, I, lo I love history. I love theology. I love, I love looking at heresies and why they're wrong and why, you know, why we got to stick to truth. Um, so hopefully you'll come back next week. So anyway, let's, <clears throat> let's start with prayer and then um, get going. Father in heaven, I do pray that you would help us understand the importance of knowing where we've come from. And I pray that you would give us um, help in understanding, both in hearing and in teaching. And I just pray that these, we would get a handle on all that our forefathers and those who for centuries before us uh, have bequeathed to us and we stand on their shoulders and we don't even know it and so I pray that you would just um, enlighten our minds and help us know the truth which will enable us to defend it and especially in the day we're in today we ask it in Jesus name amen okay <clears throat> um the first section of history is called the Apostolic Age. Apostolic Age is roughly um, 30 to 100 A.D. Um, 30 is going to be the, you know, Jesus was born by the calendar. He was born 29 B.C. Um, or tw 20, uh, 29 um, was when he um, was ascended back into heaven. We're like four years off. Um, he was 30 when he started his ministry and 33 when he was crucified and ascended into heaven. And I can't remember why we're four years off, but in, it doesn't matter. But at any rate, um, so roughly 30 to this whatever, to... 100 or say even 95 95 the end of the apostolic age is generally uh, tied to the as far as we know the death of john who was the last um living apostle okay um he was tortured and um put in uh, this is pretty strong tradition you gotta question a lot of tradition a bit um but 
at any rate, pretty strong tradition is that um, Paul was martyred at Rome, Peter was martyred at Rome, um, John was um, supposedly put into a vat of boiling oil and it had no effect on him. And so when that didn't work, they banished him, exiled him to the island of Patmos. And on the island of Patmos is where he wrote the book of Revelation. And then tradition is that he returned to Ephesus and his final years in ministry were in the Ephesian church. Okay? And somewhere died 95 AD or whatever. So it's roughly 30 to 100 is what's called the apostolic age or the age of the apostles. During that time, um, we have the writing of the New Testament. Um, and we have, as the church spread, um, there's, a, there's a bunch of currents going on at the same time. The church is spreading, Paul's missionary journeys, um, the church is passing, it is gradually transitioning from primarily Jewish Christians to Gentile Christians. Um, Jewishness um, began to lose its hold on Christianity. Now, there are a lot of good historians, and I think they're probably right, that um, it was likely providential, not only in the sense of judgment, but providential for the Christian church that Jerusalem was surrounded in 68 AD, besieged for two years by Titus, a Roman general, and utterly sacked, and numbers are all over the place, but upwards to possibly a million Jews put to death in that siege. Jerusalem fell. It was completely you know, razed to the ground. And the Jews were dispersed. The sovereign nation of Israel was gone. Um, and it wasn't until 1948 that they regained their, their homeland. Um, so from 70 A.D. to 1948, that's a long time. Um, <clears throat> why was the sacking of Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction really of Judaism in, in, at, at its center, the, th the thinking is that Judaism had a pretty strong hold and influence within the Christian church because obviously all of the apostles likely and the early church were Jews. But there was a smothering um, kind of, what, provincialness that the church never would have broken out of if they'd stayed rooted to Jerusalem and Judaism. You, we already know that there were problems that arose because of that. Acts 15, you have the first what's called um, ecumenical church council. Um, all of the apostles and representatives from the links that Christianity had gone to gathered in Jerusalem to, to try to settle the issue of what to do with uh, the new Gentile converts crowding into the church who had no Jewish background, um, were not associated with or even cared about the law, meaning, and I don't mean the Ten Commandments, I'm talking about ceremonial law, the washings, the clean meats you could eat and the unclean meat, circumcision, all that stuff. And of course the Jews were demanding that every Gentile adapt to that. And of course, Paul was the main spokesman for saying, no, this is, this is the shadow. It has now given way to the substance and we're no longer have any business imposing 
the forerunner, the foreshadow, now that the substance is here. All of this pointed to Jesus. Jesus is here. This has done its job. It's been the schoolmaster, Paul said, to lead us to Christ. I don't need all this anymore. That's what the council decided. It didn't cure it because we still find that there were Judaizers trying to convince Christians that they weren't really right unless they um, conformed to all of the Jewish stuff. So it was frankly judgment on the nation of Israel who said to Pilate, he said, this man's innocent. And they said, let his blood be on us and on our people. And it was. Forty, roughly, years later. Um, But it also unleashed the Christian church to not have to have this cloak of Judaism. And the church then grew rapidly throughout the Mediterranean basin, spread all over the place. A lot of it's tradition that we can't verify, um, but there's all kinds of, um, I don't know how valuable some of the traditions are of where the apostles ultimately went. Um, there's a, the church in India is technically still called Martoma, the Martoma church, the theory being that at least Thomas and some think Mark went clear to there. Matthew down into Egypt, but we really don't, we don't know for sure. Um, but Christianity became a Gentile religion, which was good. It um, wasn't God's plan. He meant for the Jews to be the evangelists, but they by and large refuse okay now um, as the church grew it's like anything else things start out and as you go as you grow you begin to recognize that you have to have some kind of structure you need some minimal organization Now, we all know what humans do with organization. We multiply it, and we multiply it, and we multiply it, and pretty soon you've got more administrators at the university than you do professors and students, okay? We do the same thing with government. Um, We always, humans just can't quit doing it. Um, The church, of course, had to respond to the influx of new converts with some kind of organization. Somebody's got to be in charge, okay? Somebody's got to make decisions. Somebody has to answer questions. Is this teaching accurate or not? Um, Now, initially, that authority was exercised by the obvious, the, the 11 apostles, okay? Um, that made sense. Uh, they were the ones that had been with Jesus. They were the ones chosen by him. They're the ones that witnessed, you know, and were the witnesses and wrote the gospels of, of the works of, and the teachings of Jesus, they were then the ones not only to report what he did and said, but to interpret it spiritually and doctrinally. Okay? So far, so good. Still the church is mostly in uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Palestine. Maybe going up into Syria some. Um, the Ethiopian treasurer Philip preached to him he goes down to goes back to Ethiopia so there's some spreading of the gospel but it's regional it's pretty regional Um, after the persecution of Stephen 
which is about five or six years after Pentecost. That scattered everybody. And it says they were scattered from Jerusalem. Only the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. But everyone else pretty much was scattered. And it says they went everywhere preaching the gospel. And some of them, it said, who were Gentiles, went north up the Mediterranean coast to Antioch and began to preach the gospel to Gentiles, okay? Because they were Gentiles. Antioch massively received the gospel, okay? A sign of some, I guess you could say, even informal authority was when they got word that this city, Gentile city, had received the gospel, the elders, the, the apostles in Jerusalem sent Barnabas. Now, he was not an original apostle, but he was an early convert. They sent Barnabas to Antioch to check it out, make sure they were teaching and preaching true doctrine, try to organize them some way, see what was going on. And so Barnabas is sent there. It says about Barnabas that he exhorted them that with purpose of heart they would continue with the Lord. Okay? Um, and Barnabas, then it says, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Now, after he had spent a little bit of time there, he, meanwhile, persecution of Stephen, Paul got converted. Okay? And Paul, we, his whole, we're not going into right now, um, but his whole trek of going to Damascus and then going into the Arabian Desert and spending three years there and finally going to Jerusalem, then going back to Tarsus. Barnabas goes to Tarsus. He gets Paul, and he brings Paul down to Antioch to help in the work there. Um, Paul, then, it's while they're in, in Antioch, in Acts 13, that it says the Holy Spirit spoke to the elders. Those were the ministers of the growing church there. They spoke to them. Though the Holy Spirit spoke to the elders as they fasted and prayed and said, separate Barnabas and Paul to the work that I've called them to. Okay? That was the call to Paul, Paul's first missionary journey. Now there's a couple, in, to me, interesting things here. One also assumed was that the elders, and they're not named, we really don't know that all, a few of them are named, but it's in general the ministers, okay? The, those called to preach and to teach and to be um, the episkopos is the word, which is translated a um, couple ways, but means bishop or overseer. So there were people with uh, oversight, calling, teach and preach and lead the church, okay? The Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit's words, He invested them with authority. And so there you have the whole concept of ordination, of ministerial credentials, of a group of, whether it be presbyters or whatever you want to call it, a group of ministers who ordain other ministers to the ministry, okay? Um, then um, they go on the first missionary journey, and I'm going to jump ahead here for a second. They go ahead on the missionary journey. It's just in Asia Minor, which is today Turkey, and they return and they go to Jerusalem, okay? One of the reasons Paul says in the book of Galatians that he went to Jerusalem and this speaks to the source of authority. 
He said he went to the elders, that's the other apostles, he went to the elders, and he carefully said privately, he laid out to them the gospel that he was preaching. And he did it, he said, so that he would not have run in vain or preached in vain. So what, he's, what it means is, Paul recognized that the source of authority in the very early church were the apostles, and even a guy like Paul, who was more learned than the, the, the fishermen that were the apostles, um, still submitted himself to them and explained the doctrines he was preaching about Christ, most of which he had received not only from reading the Old Testament, but from, he said, revelations in the desert of Arabia. And so he submits himself, he goes to the apostles and he says, here's what I'm preaching. Am I right or not? I think I am, but. And they said yes, and it says Peter gave them the right hand of fellowship, so forth. But there's much there to me um, about the whole business of the authority in the church. I am not, um, well, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here, but it is right, good, biblical, reasonable that if I feel called to the ministry, that I submit to somebody, some group that has authority to question me, question my very call, um, do question my spiritual experience, my aptness to preach and teach. You know, can you get along with people or not? Are you nuts or not? Are you weird or not? Um, can you get, can you teach somebody from A to B to C? Or are you just rambling all over the place? You know, do you have what's called the gifts and the graces? We are, and I'm jumping too far ahead, but today, especially in Western civilization and specifically America, we are nothing but a bunch of lone rangers. And, you know, because I had too many pieces of pizza the night before with, with anchovies on it, um, had heartburn and a nightmare, and I got called. And there ain't a no, nobody's going to tell me that I ain't. I'm called. Well, no, you're not. <laughs> Until you submit to ordained authority who questions you, and then, if their hearts are attuned to yours, they, you lay hands on them. Paul told Timothy, and that's what he's referring to. He said, don't lay hands suddenly on anybody. Meaning, don't just go around ordaining guys and putting them in churches and giving sheep the care of God's sheep into their hands. Um, so there had to be some authority to start with. That was what just coalesced around um, the early apostles. Now, um, there, be, there became then probably 20, 30 years after the day of Pentecost, which was the birth date, really, of the church, um, local organization had to come into being so that the local churches, the churches in Corinth, um, Galatia, Lystra, you know, wherever you were at, um, how does the local church run? Most of the churches, of course, there were never any buildings. No one had buildings. They, they would meet in other use buildings or homes. You have Paul referring a lot to so-and-so, I greet you, and the church that meets in your house. So that's all they had. They didn't have, they didn't really have, of course, they didn't have tax exemption. They didn't have uh, freedom of religion. They didn't have anything. Um, they were looked upon very suspiciously. Um, and w we'll get to that in a second because that produced persecution. But locally, Paul begins to give them, you have the, just the kind of 
um, budding of some faint outlines of authority in a local church. And it's the pastor. It seemed to be you have two, if you want to call it orders, pastors and deacons. Pastors were the spiritual overseers, did the preaching, so forth, um, the baptizing, all that. The deacons took care of the secular affairs of the church. They counted the offering. They, you know, they um, did, you know, they gave money to the poor. They began, Paul refers apparently to a, a list of people in the local churches that needed help, mostly widows, orphans, people like that. And because he talks about don't add someone to the list for church um, help if they have relatives who can support them. And he throws in that thing. He said, if anybody doesn't support his own household, he won't work, shouldn't eat. Um, but he said, people that really need help, then there's where a lot of the offerings are to go to. The deacons took care of um, passing that out, keeping records, so forth. Okay, So you have those two um, at this point, <clears throat> beginning to kind of show up. Then you have other people that are primarily lay people. They're not full-time uh, Christians who are organized along the gifts that they had. And you have the gifts uh, list of gifts that um, different people have. Hospitality, teaching, giving, whatever. Okay, um, So all of this just kind of gradually... Um, begin to show up. Um, then, let's say by the 60s, um, you already have some pretty serious heresies that are taking root. Um, the one that we've talked about, I think I've talked to you about it before, called Gnosticism. It's uh, G-N-O-S. Um, it's from the word knowledge. It's a Greek word for knowledge or to know. Um, this was a really destructive, dangerous one. Um, it had some weirdness to it. They believed um, that it was a kind of secretive, specialized knowledge that only a few had. And um, that was what you had to have to be saved to, to finally make it to heaven. But they were... Um, where they were strange was in the doctrine of good and evil, matter was evil, spirit was good, and that led to all kinds of errors. But I'll only mention two that are hit in the New Testament. We know from John, First uh, John, and from Paul that this this thinking and and the Book of Revelation that this thinking was already taking place. It was already taking root. Okay, um, everybody understand what I mean when I say matter is dirt. <laughs> you know, I mean it. It's everything. Spirit is what I can't see. It's supernatural, um, including the spirit of us. Um, the but the the best way to look at it, I suppose, is I look at someone. I call them by name, but that I'm I'm looking at the house they live in. Okay, um, and I name it. We have a name for them. It's Lori. But the truth of the matter is, that's not Lori. Lori is a never dying spirit, soul, that inhabits temporarily a physical body. And we recognize that physical body, the tent she lives in, the house she lives in. And so we call her and we say, yeah, I saw Lori. But you didn't really. Um, it's like going to your old neighborhood and you drive by. Most of us have done that once or twice in our lives. And you go to the house you were in 30 years ago, you know, what those rats that bought it do to, you know, look, they tore up the shrubs we planted. Um, you... <laughs> You say, you know, you don't say when you go down the street, um, 
there's Dan and Liz. No, that's the house we used to live in, but we don't anymore. So that's not us. Well, focusing on that, the Gnostics had a strange division between spirit and body, that the body was matter, it was dirt, it was material. The spirit, of course, is spiritual. You, you can't see it, and so forth. Um, they believed that the spirit and matter, spirit was good, matter was inherently evil. It was a Greek philosophical way to explain the presence of evil in the world. And so the teaching was that there's no, um, there's no connection, there's no um, interconnection at all between spirit and matter. Now, here's two doctrines that it immediately led to. One, it destroyed the incarnation of Christ. Jesus wasn't really, didn't really inhabit a real human body because he's pure spirit, which is good, and matter is evil. So there's no way that Jesus could have become human and come here, which means he didn't really die. And it gets down to where even today, that doctrine's still around. In the 1940s and 1950s, liberals would talk about that the, it was called, I don't really know who labeled it this, the swoon theory. Jesus swooned on the cross. It wasn't a real death because he wasn't a real flesh and blood human being because spirit doesn't have anything to do with flesh and blood. So Jesus wasn't incarnate. Therefore, he doesn't know how we live and are tempted. He, doesn't, he didn't die a real death and he didn't have a real resurrection. Now you think, well, we can put up with that, that doctrine. No, you can't because w- look what it does. That's what John was talking about. We said in 1 John, that which we have seen, touched, handled, he was real. That was a shot at that doctrine because it was already entered. Here's the other doctrine that it taught, which in a practical manner is, I don't think it can be worse than attacking the incarnation. But it taught basically whatever you Whatever you do in your body does not affect or touch your spirit. Okay? So, it's apparent that there were churches in the book of Revelation. John wrote to, and he mentions, he says, you have that Jezebel who's teaching among you, and she is teaching my servants to commit fornication. Okay, it meant then that all kinds of licentiousness, whatever you wanted to do, it didn't affect your spirit. Your spirit is still good. Your body is committing evil deeds, but it doesn't affect your spirit. Now, that doctrine's still around. It's under new forms, but and I don't have to say this with, you know, pounding the, pounding the pulpit and whatever. That's what, once you're saved, further sin, willful sin, will not separate you from God, is nothing but Gnosticism dressed up in new clothes. That's what it is. Jesus said also, he named a person we don't know, Some think they know a little bit. He talked about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. He said, which I hate. And it was that doctrine. Um, It also oddly led, it either leads to licentiousness the majority of time, but the other, it can lead to what was the forerunner of monasticism, called asceticism, which is harsh treatment of the body to keep it under. 
and that's where you have the starving yourself and living in the desert and you know just being nuts to punish your body because it's evil and you have to live in it until you freed from this prison you get out okay so that was one of the very first doctrines that cropped up that was we see it from the new testament itself that it was being shot back at okay now um think about the kind of the center of the church was jerusalem that's where you went if you had a big question that's where all the preachers gathered and they voted on stuff like acts 15 that's where uh, you went to to um, even get some kind of credential as it were some authorization to preach they they send you out all of a sudden persecution breaks out most are scattered and then finally the romans level the place okay well now where do you go you don't have in a sense uh, a capital city anymore you don't have you know the denominational headquarters <laughs> you have nothing so this was a major shock when persecution began to break out and then Jerusalem collapses. What began to come up in the middle of all this were some centers, usually centers that were also politically, militarily, educationally, financially prominent. Alexandria was one down at the mouth of the Nile. That became in later centuries, a huge Christian center. The church in Antioch, where Paul was sent from. Paul ended up, that was really his home base. It wasn't Jerusalem. Antioch rose. Ephesus became a main center. Um, but you, Rome began to be a center. And what you can what you see, you can't help it. It happens. There's just no way around it. But the main churches were where the main political influence was, the money, the military, the government. Okay? Jumping ahead, it was inevitable that there became even the success of the church converted government officials, people in the Roman Senate, people that were, you know, the treasurer of the city or whatever, that we see even in the New Testament, you begin to have um, Christians having an influence on, in two ways, in the conversion of Gentiles who were in positions of political power. And then those people who remained in those positions, maybe by dynasty or whatever else, they were Christians and they also had state, some degree of state power. Okay? Now, we think that's great. I don't know how many of you are, um, those of you that are really decrepit and old as, as I am, can remember, remember the moral majority, Jerry Falwell? Okay, what was the whole goal of that? I mean, what, what, what were you, what were they trying to recruit and what were they trying to do um, in politically? Anybody remember? Okay, get out the vote for who? And, well, rather than conservative Christian values, conservatives who were Christians. Meaning, I mean down to dog catcher. We need a Christian dog catcher. We need, we need Christian school board members. Now, who's, who's opposed to that? Okay, But it was, let's recruit good Christians um, to fill these positions of power and that will 
ensure the dominance of Christianity in our nation. Okay? It sounds wonderful. Here's the problem. It's never worked. The only time it's worked, well, that it really didn't work, is Israel with, with a theocracy where God was, he was the king. And they didn't like that. But it takes a special kind of person to um, be able to have power and stay Christian. Thorough Christian. Okay? Well, so the very success of the church that got converts right under Caesar's nose in his own household had, in a sense, the, in a sense, the seeds of its destruction. Now, so, obviously, I'm not saying, okay, let's don't get anybody saved, you know, so we can say a small persecuted bunch and then we'll be pure. Um, not saying that, but um, let me just give you a modern day illustration. Um, in 1850 in the United States, there were, um, the Methodist Church had one of every three people that were identified at all as a churchgoer, anything. And that was clear back when, I mean, if you didn't go to church, you were just, you know, bad, okay? One out of three were Methodists. Now, I love the Methodists. I am a Methodist in the sense of doctrine and so forth. I think it's great, but it killed it because so many people were Methodists that if you want to make it, you got to be a Methodist. Okay, you're not going to get to be vice president of the bank from a teller because the banker, the head of the bank, the board, most of them are Methodists. So what do you do? Are you going to go to the Salvation Army who meet on the other side of the tracks? Are you going to go to the Baptists? No. I'm a Methodist. Maybe only skin deep. So the Methodist Church also in 1850, the Methodist Church was, was starting two churches a day across the United States. That's how fast they were growing. Okay? The, the more people poured in the more it diluted the good, solid, you know, people, the salt, okay? And if you're a preacher and you aren't absolutely, completely dead to your own agenda and your own reputation and whatever else, you are not going to preach something that it might make the banker mad, Okay? So the church began, as it grew faster, it got sicker, less healthy. We always equate growth with health, but it's false. Some of the fast cancers, cancer's growth is not healthy. I'll never forget a, an evangelist that... I used to have come to, he's in heaven now, um, but my dad had him, and it was, this was back in the day when you had revivals, springtime, summer, and then there were summer camps and all, and Jimmy Lentz was his name, absolutely tremendous, unbelievable preacher, Mississippi guy, you know, Mississippi drawl, he could preach, and he was hilarious, and I mean, you could you could listen to him and look, and an hour and a half had gone, and it seemed like that. Um, and he was always trying to teach me how to golf, which is a lost cause. But um, he and my brother Jonathan and I were went golfing. Hot day. We go to this golf course. You know, we get done. Well, going in, on the long road going into the golf course itself, there was just a monstrous raccoon that gotten hit right square in the middle of the barely two-lane road that went maybe a mile or two back in there. 
And he kind of had just been hit. Well, we played, you know, you meet up four hours probably to play golf. Well, we're coming out. By then, you know, there's a swarm flies around the thing. And it's bigger. It has, it's grown. <laughs> and he, he made, <laughs> we're driving along, and he, he looked at that and he said, let me tell you guys something. He said, that's like a lot of churches. He said, he's going to get an awful lot bigger, but he's just as dead. All growth is not always good. That kind of growth killed the methods. And once, and I'm a bit head, but once you get to the three early, early 300s, actually 312, there was something called the Edict of Nans. Nance. And it was a declaration by Constantine, the new Roman emperor. People say that Christianity was made a state church then. It was not. He just simply rescinded an old edict that outlawed Christianity. And he said, it's no longer outlawed. It can, it can pursue converts just like any other religion can. And so that... But then Constantine himself became a Christian. So the same thing that happened to the Methodists happened to the Christian church in the then known world because the attendance or the, the, the self-proclaimed Christians just skyrocketed. The number went up by millions. But with it came worldliness, all kinds of heresies, compromise um, that had already been going on but reached a new a new level okay um, let me just kind of um, get to a stopping place here um, heresies were already even when the apostles were here were cropping up um, and with the death of the apostles, you had some great early church fathers whose names hardly any of us know. And, um, I mean, they're in history books. But they began, they took the mantle of the apostles and did their best, you know, to, uh, they wrote. And you have, for instance, there's a guy named Clement. Well, he's there. He wrote several letters to the Corinthian church. So you have epistles to Corinth. Not that Paul wrote, but Clement wrote them. Um, you have a guy named Irenaeus, who was an associate of John. Um, you have Ignatius. You know, you get to Polycarp, um, who um, at 86 is martyred. You have the, the passing away of the, um, of the apostles. Now, as the apostles, even when they were here, but especially as they died off, and we really don't know, you know, we date 95, roughly, John died. But I don't know how long John was the only apostle still living. Probably a long time. So the apostolic age didn't just get up one morning and it's like New Year's Day, the ball drops, now we're in post-apostolic. It didn't happen like that. The apostles just went, most of them, well, John was the only one not martyred. Every, every other apostle was, as far as we know, was martyred. He was the only one who wasn't. They had tried it, and it didn't work. So that's the only way he lived to a normal, um, normal death. As that happened, three things began to take place. Three needs arose, okay? One, the need... Um, the need for, and I'm going to use this word, we can learn it, the need for a canon. C-A-N-O-N. The word canon means stick or measuring rod or ruler. Okay? Well, you don't have the apostles anymore. They're dead. Who says you hear that Joe Schmo over here and some 
church. He's preaching stuff I never heard. Um, and who settles the debate? Who corrects that guy? Who, who pulls him out of the church? What do we do? Um, we need a canon. They needed a canon. The canon was then the New Testament. The New Testament is our rule. And during that time, and not settled um, yet during that time, was which books belong in the New Testament. Um, s- real early, maybe in the 150s or so, even a bit earlier, there were some nearly nearly identical to what we have today lists of books that were in the New Testament. But s- if some of them, they were still bickering over them 200 years later. James was one of them. And you had a couple that they thought might have been written by an apostle that weren't. They finally settled on this. The only books that are going to be in the New Testament are written by an apostle or a a very, very close associate, like um, Luke to Paul. He wrote Luke and Acts. Um, John Mark, who was mentored by Peter, okay? Um, so those, those are the letters and the Gospels that ended up accepted because of apostolic authorship, okay? Second thing that um, was needed <coughs> was, again, some kind of organization. We have to have somebody that's running this, um, otherwise, we're just, we're just a bunch of lone rangers out here. Every church is on its own, and we, we, d- we have no co- cohesion here at all. So we've got to have who, who kind of takes over. Well, I, I won't go into all the details except, except this. It began to make sense, and it's, it, itself it wasn't wrong. But, you know... Reverend whoever, that pastors the church in Rome, that's the capital of the whole empire, we look to him. Their rival guys, Alexandria, Antioch, ends up Constantinople, um, as some of those great centers, Carthage, um, North Africa was a heavy Christian area until the Muslims came in in the 6 and 700s. Um, but the pastors of the big churches, and they weren't the church, I mean an a church, it was a, the collective bunch of Christians in the town. Um, but they became the prominent people. And it took a long time. But the Bishop of Rome began to gain he was the he was kind of the recognized go-to guy nothing official but it just kind of developed that way okay so that took a long time but they knew they needed not only um the a canon they needed some kind of of um authority and then <coughs> they also they also um, needed, and this gets tricky. We can talk. We'll talk about it later. But they also needed um, a an, a an a physical authority, not just the New Testament. But the apostles are gone. Who do we consult with? Who runs things? And there, there comes in what's called apostolic succession. Okay? So they begin to look to and exalt and appoint um, and consult with the people that were the close associates with the apostles. Okay? Now that makes sense. Um, even in our own country, we have the founding fathers, and then you have either their protégés, their students, their mentorees, or whoever. Um, 
And we get into the second generation after Jefferson, Franklin, Monroe, Washington are gone. So it's not an unheard of thing. It's probably not too bad of an idea, but it leads to problems down the road. Okay? So to this very day, Pope, the Pope, Francis, he is a direct descendant in this sense. He, ha- he is a direct successor to the apostles in that Pope Francis was ordained by Archbishop whoever, okay? Arch- that Archbishop was ordained by Archbishop so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and you get back to Paul or Peter or somebody. They would say Peter, Catholics, because Peter was the first, first Pope of the church, which is nonsense, but nevertheless... Um, Apostolic succession then is a huge deal in some churches today um, because it conveys with it the same authority that the apostles had. Can you see how that can be dangerous? So that the it's believed at least by the Pope when he speaks and it's called ex cathedra out of the cathedral, out of the... When he speaks from his bishopric chair, his throne, as it were, it is infallible. When you, he settles all doctrinal issues or whatever, it's infallible. The interesting thing is you get in the Middle Ages, they had three popes. And they had these three popes excommunicated each other all the time. Um, it's really interesting when three of them are infallible and they throw each other out. Um, but at any rate, just to close with this, the, that's why today, um, here's just a little bit of how some of this stuff that is so old is still in force today. If you go to a Catholic service of some kind of funeral or whatever it might be, and there is communion, they'll usually make a little announcement there's also a reading that is done and there's something mentioned about our I don't know if you've ever caught this but there's something mentioned about our separated brethren okay which is non-catholics the protestants you can't take communion you can go to the front and they'll tell you you can go to the front and you cross your arms and you can be quote blessed okay but you cannot partake of communion because you're not a part of the holy universal church which goes clear back to directly to the apostles and you can't we're on the outside looking in um so there's there's how an ancient 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 idea got going that is still just as current and an issue in 2021 um, well, I got to shut up. Um, it will. It that issue itself created problems with John Wesley and the Methodists in England. Um, Church of England believes in apostolic succession, Episcopal. Um, so anyway, well, now hopefully we'll see next week how many how we vote with our feet. Um, <laughs> Uh, how many of you will show up? Before, we, we got like three minutes before the kids get out. Um, any any questions, um, thoughts, even something that we can, I can jot down, we can discuss next week? Everything's so perfectly clear that, you know, I mean, there's just no, there's no <laughs> doubts left in anybody's mind. <clears throat> yeah. Just a a basic organization had to, well, uh, you could just say uh, structure. Structure, organization, and then you have the actual issue of the ministry. Um, An apostolic succession grew up out of that.
okay? The church, the, here's one thing when we get done with this class, if, if you stay around long enough. You, anybody you ever hear saying, I just wish we could get back to the simple New Testament church. The New Testament church was a mess. Okay? Now, that wasn't God's fault. When, what happened when Jesus was born? Herod tried to kill him in his infancy. The devil tried to kill the church in its infancy. And he's still trying. But he, he did a pretty good job of keeping things stirred up. Okay, we'll start into some of the very second uh, heresies that came up. And they begin to hit more than one at a time. Multiple. Um, some crazy ones. So anyway, uh, and then that will bring us to the Apostles' Creed maybe next week, week after, to see why they wrote certain things. Okay? All right. Well, let's dismiss with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that as we, whatever we do know about history at the, after the close of the New Testament era, it had to be, the church had to be superintended by you or there wouldn't be anything left. We wouldn't have the scriptures we, in their purity. We wouldn't have anything. But it, it opens up the idea, Lord, that we're in a warfare and we're always in a warfare and we aren't going to get out of it. We have to learn how to fight the good fight, stick to the truth, recognize error, and follow you. Go with us, I pray, and keep us, and just bless our hearts in these days as we continue to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you're dismissed.